Amen. Revelation chapter 10 begins, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book opened, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hands to heaven and swear by him that lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are therein and the earth and things that therein are and the sea and things which are therein that there should be no, I'm sorry, there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is upon the hand of the angel which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went to the angel and I said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it up. And it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, You must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The book of Revelation sometimes seems to come to us in like waves breaking on the shoreline. The, the water crashes in and there's a brief interlude before the next white cap crashes in. For example, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, opened the seven seals of the scroll of God's plan for history. And after the first six were opened, then we had this brief interlude in Revelation 7. The whole chapter interrupted that opening of the seals and to discuss the question who will be able to stand and then the next chapter returned to the events of the seals opening the seventh seal was open in our text this morning we have a similar interlude we're between the sixth and seventh trumpets in chapters eight and nine the first six trumpets were sounded and judgment came to the earth and we would expect now that the seventh trumpet would sound but instead we find these two other events that are interrupting those trumpet judgments in revelation 10 this morning we have john's vision of and interaction with this mighty angel and then in revelation 11 he describes these two mysterious witnesses before the seventh trumpet is finally sounded in chapter 11 verse 15 the purposes of these brief pauses in the flow of judgment appears to be 
comforting the saints of God. And Revelation 7, the opening of the seals was interrupted to address the, the saints who wanted to know how, the Lord, how long the Lord would, would wait to judge wickedness in its entirety. Now in Revelation 10, the, the trumpet judgments are briefly interrupted to reassure the Apostle John of God's sovereignty in all of these events that are being described. John is going to be told in this chapter, there are some things you know and there's some things you don't. There's some things that you can write down and there's some things that you can't. But your dedication and obedience to the word of God is going to be used as a testimony to all kinds of people in all kinds of places. We're going to go through this text this morning, chapter 10, in five parts. We're going to see the mighty angel in verses 1 and 2, the hidden thunders in verses 3 and 4, a sacred oath in verses 5 through 7, the bittersweet truth in verses 8 through 10, and the great commission in verse 11. So let's start by looking at detail with this mighty angel. He says in verses 1 and 2, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face was, as it were, the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book opened, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. This mighty angel is colossal. He's huge. Three times in this text, in verse 2, in verse 5, and verse 8, it is stressed that this angel is so large, he is standing with one foot on the oceans and another foot on the land. I suppose... It probably wouldn't shock you to hear that Bible students over the centuries have disagreed about the identity of this angel. This angel that's being described here is either the Lord Jesus himself or perhaps it is one of the archangels like Michael or some other unknown mighty angel. Let me just briefly outline for you the reasons why some people see this as Jesus. First, you know the word angel is just a common word that means messenger. Many times in the Old Testament, it talks about the angel of the Lord, and that is, in fact, Jesus. This angel is a messenger, and he's come from heaven itself. Also, some characteristics of this angel match what we would expect to be attributes of the Lord. There's a cloud, just how the, the Lord Jesus is supposed to return. There's, there's a rainbow, just, or just like there is around God's throne in Revelation 4.3. His, his face is shining like the sun, which seems very much like Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. This mighty angel appears with a foot on the sea, not in the sea, on the sea. That sounds a little bit like walking on water, at least standing on water, right? The other foot's on the land. It gives him the appearance of authority over the whole earth. 
He's holding a scroll, and some would read this and say, well, maybe that's the very scroll that's been being described in Revelation. Jesus himself had taken a scroll and had been opening the seals of it. Now we see this mighty angel with a scroll. And then also, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this angel, in verse 3, roars like a lion. So, are you convinced? Not, not quite, myself. Almost. Let's try to debunk this just a little bit and explain why I think this mighty angel is not Jesus. First off, the roaring like a lion is not convincing to me because the Apostle Peter describes Satan the exact same way, right? He's like a roaring lion. Some of those Old Testament passages that refer to an angel of the Lord or a messenger of the Lord, those are, in fact, Jesus because when he spoke a message, it is a message from the Lord. But if this is Jesus, it would be the only time in the New Testament that Jesus would be described as an angel. It's not surprising that a holy angel would appear with some of the same descriptive characteristics of God himself. This holy angel is given authority over the earth for a time, working on behalf of a holy God. It's almost as if holiness would be his uniform, right? This angel is not the Lord because in verses 5 and 6, as we go on, he's going to make an oath to the Lord. In um, Further, the, the timing of this would be strange if it was Jesus, the timing of this is in the middle of the tribulation period, right? But this is not the second coming. It's not the rapture. If this is Jesus standing on the earth in the middle of the tribulation period, we would have to label this as like the second coming version 1.5 or something like that. It's, it doesn't fit timing-wise. And finally, John calls this another mighty angel in verse 1. You may remember that in in English, that word another doesn't distinguish whether it is another of a different kind or another of the same kind. But in Greek, there are actually two different words for that. There's alos, which is another of the same kind, and there's heteros, which is another of a different kind. And John uses alos here. So what he's saying is, I, you know, after he's seen a vision that's had angels already, he says, I saw another mighty of the same kind, angel. Now, whether I've convinced you that this is Jesus or I've convinced you that it's not Jesus, I now get to tell you that whichever way you see it ultimately is not going to make a material difference in the meaning of the text. But seriously, y'all, it's not Jesus. Even if this is a created angelic being it is working in obedience and under the authority of god it does not change the fact that the authority of the text is god's authority this angel operates as the lord's at the lord's command and for the lord's glory whether the scroll he carries is the the unsealed scroll from earlier in revelation or it is a new smaller scroll it's still obvious the message he brings is from the lord himself any message this angel has is a message from heaven it is a message from god 
any authority that this massive and mighty angel appears to have over the earth will be delegated authority from the creator of heaven and earth. And so verses 1 and 2, we see this mighty angel. Now look at these hidden thunders. God, let me just say this first. God is not honor-bound to reveal every mystery to his people, and certainly not to the world as a whole. In verses 3 and 4, we read about seven thunders, but the meaning and the message of them is concealed from us. Look at verse 3 and 4. This angel, he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. When this massive, mighty angel whose stance spans, you know, sea and land, cries out with a loud voice, John says it's like a lion roaring, it must have created quite a commotion. But its roaring is soon met with an echo of seven thunders that are pealing out from heaven. These thunders are more than just merely sounds. Each individual thunder had some significance. There was a, a message in each one. John hears clearly a a discernible meaning in every one of those thunders. And he dutifully prepares to write down what he heard, but a voice from heaven prohibited him from recording what he heard. It is sealed up. It is to be concealed from us. The Lord is righteous in what he reveals and in what he conceals. Deuteronomy 29.29 says... The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things that are revealed belong unto us and our children forever. In this case, the only part of the thunders that are recorded for us is the fact that these thunders exist and that they will sound. Beyond that, any attempt to venture a a specific hypothesis about what each thunder contained is entirely foolhardy. We don't know. We are not meant to know. We are, though, meant to know that they exist. It's as if the lightning is already flashed and the sound of the thunder is certain and we're just waiting for it. So while we're not expected or even encouraged to guess what each thunder contains... The text does carry the expectation that we have to contemplate the the meaning of why the Lord reveals their existence to us, but not their substance. Or said another way, the text sort of demands we ask the question, why tell us that there are these seven thunders if you're not going to tell us what these seven thunders are? Well, throughout Revelation, John reveals and records groups of seven. There are Seven seals, right? And as those seven seals are opened, the judgment of God comes to the earth. There are seven trumpets, and as the seven trumpets are sounded, judgment comes to the earth. Later, we're going to read about seven bowls or seven vials that are poured out, and judgment comes on the earth. I think in the, in the context of Revelation, we are 
We are bound to assume that these seven thunders are bringing some sort of judgment to the earth. But the exact form and function of that judgment isn't necessary for us to know. God, in his sovereign wisdom, has determined to reveal the difficult times facing those who are in the tribulation period. But he has also inserted this to make it clear that there's even more that you don't know about the judgment that's coming to the earth. So that we have no choice but to submit to his authority and trust his wisdom. He is not honor bound to explain every event in world history, nor is he required to answer every question that you have about why things happen in your life the way that they do. Knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know There's one thing you should know. You can always trust the Lord. Verses 1 and 2 describe that mighty angel. Verses 3 and 4 describe, without describing, those hidden thunders. Now look at the sacred oath, starting at verse 5. The angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven and swore by him that lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth, and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, and he, as he has declared to his servants the prophets. This angel raises his hand and takes an oath. He swears Some have complained that this this violates God's command, his standard of righteousness. After all, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 34 through 36, Do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the uh, city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. And James reaffirms that exact truth in James 5.12 by saying, if you swear by heaven or earth or any other oath, you are in danger of being condemned. The warning there is wise. Don't make any hasty or frivolous promises. And yet that's not what's happening in Revelation 10. This mighty angel has been sent on this predetermined mission under the authority of the very creator to whom he makes this promise. There's nothing thoughtless or or frivolous about this. The oath sworn is sworn through the power of God who made, in verse 6, the sky and all that's in it and the land and everything on it and the sea and all its contents. And the mighty angel also declares it's based on the eternal nature of God. He says in verse 6, he swore by him who lives forever and ever. This sacred oath is based on the Lord's all-powerful and eternal purposes. The detail of what he is promising is at the end of verse 6, that there should be time no longer. That's a a little bit of a difficult phrase. It literally would translate to there will no longer be a period of time. 
It is not that this angel is saying that time is going to stop now. But the idea is better expressed in the words, there will be no more delay. (laughs) The, The wait's over. Time's up. So when is time up? We're, we're right here between the, the sixth and seventh trumpets in Revelation. And the angel says in verse 7, that in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. So when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, the mystery of God is going to be finished. Time, time will be up. There will be no more delay. The mystery of God, he says. Well, we just had a mystery in verses 3 and 4, right? What, what are those thunders? Is that the mystery? That's not what he's talking about. Although by the time the seventh trumpet sounds, those thunders won't be a mystery anymore. They will have happened. The term mystery is used several times in the New Testament. We'll, we'll see, Lord willing, one of them later on this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. It's always describing some truth of God, some part of God's plan that is finally and fully revealed. In this case, I would argue that the truth is about the fulfillment of the kingdom of God as Christ returns to reign on the earth. The prophets of the Old Testament, the angel says in verse 7, this this mystery of God to be revealed is one that was declared to the prophets. And the prophets of the Old Testament were very focused on the promise of the kingdom of God on earth. They declared the son of David who would reign over that kingdom. The unified voice of, of Jesus' disciples for century upon century has been to pray as he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that what happens when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet? There will be no more delay as we await this kingdom because it's fully and finally revealed? Well, let's just check. Look over at chapter 11, verse 15. This is where I have to tell you, there's a, this is a spoiler alert, right? Revelation 11, verse 15 Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This mighty angel takes a sacred oath, and it's secure in the eternal purposes of the Almighty God himself that when the seventh trumpet sounds, King Jesus will reign forever. And while we await that day, we're supposed to be about the king's business. As we await that day, we know that troubling times are going to befall the earth. Let me just ask you this. Does the prospect of God's judgment coming to the earth and Jesus returning to the earth, does that reality fill you with mixed emotions? Does studying Revelation come to you with a feeling of joyful expectation of Jesus mingled with a sense of sadness of what wickedness is, how, how it's going to be judged? If so, the next point of the text might be helpful to you. 
Let's look at, as John consumes the bittersweet truth, starting at verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, <coughs> "Sorry, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went to the angel and I said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it. And eat it up, and it shall make your belly bitter, and it shall be in your mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. This mighty angel has a little scroll, and John obeys as he is told to go to the angel. Can you imagine commanding that mighty angel, like, give me that? He goes to the angel and he takes this little scroll and he is to eat it. And when he does, it is sweet in his mouth, but it upsets his stomach. It's bitter to his stomach. Isn't this strange, right? Eat, eat a scroll. Well, yes, of course it is strange, but it's also not unheard of. Revelation is filled with comparisons and images from the Old Testament prophets. In this case... The prophet Ezekiel had the same experience. Listen as I read to you Ezekiel's experience from Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9 through chapter 3, verse 3. So now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was was in it. Then he spread it before me. And there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Now that's just too similar to think that there is not some connection there. Ezekiel was given a scroll to eat and while it tasted sweet in his mouth he also said that scroll contained lamentation and mourning and woe. Later on in that chapter he he explains the the bitterness that he felt as he declared God's word to the people. And now John is handed a scroll, a scroll that I would argue is essentially the, the contents of his vision of this book of Revelation. And he finds it both to be sweet and to be bitter. So let's just make two simple applications with this. First off, there is a bittersweet experience in this revelation. If this study fills you with a sense of joy and sadness... Take some consolation. The Apostle John's experience was much the same. There is delight and excitement in this message, right? The Lord Jesus is coming back. Sin and Satan are going to be destroyed. Christ is going to rule and reign on the earth. Those are causes for joy. But that said, no believer with any kind of heart for sinners like themselves will fail to grieve over the destruction that's to come. Ezekiel recorded how God asked rhetorically, do you think that I have any pleasure that the wicked should die and not turn from their ways? Paul, 
who lived for the glory of God, wrote in, Saul, wrote in uh, Romans 9 that he had great sorrow and continual grief in his heart over his countrymen who rejected the gospel. If your experience with the word is bittersweet, right, bringing you a sense of overwhelming joy and also a sense of sorrow, then your experience with the word is probably on track. You're getting it right if you crave the return of Christ and yet cringe at the righteous destruction that's coming. The second application is simply to question your diet in God's word. Sometimes in scripture, the the description of eating or drinking is, is used to simply say, well, is it part of you? So for example, when, when Jesus spoke in John chapter 6 and said, you have to eat my body and drink my blood, he was not saying that his disciples are going to have to become cannibals that literally eat him. What he was saying was that when it comes to his sacrifice for sins, that has to become part of you. John here is expected to consume the word. It has to become a part of him. The word of God is here for a Christian's nourishment. The apostle Peter calls it milk. The apostle Paul calls it meat. Psalms call it honey. You're meant to consume it and it nourishes you and it makes you grow, bringing you to maturity in the Lord Jesus. Frankly, as your pastor, I would be thrilled to know that you make it through the Bible in reading every year. But unless the Bible has found its way through to you, what good is that? Until you have consumed and contemplated all the bittersweet truths it contained, what good is it for it to sit on your coffee table or, or your bedside? You have to consume it. You have to take it in. And after it's taken in, then it is to be declared. It's to be lived out in the way that we behave and it's to be declared to others in the way that we speak. Look, at me, look with me at this final verse, verse 11, the Great Commission. He said to me, you must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The command to consume the word is followed by a command to declare the word. It is emphatic language. You must prophesy, he tells them. The context suggests that the contents of what John declares, simply speaking or telling is what prophesy means there, the content of the message is identical to what John had just consumed. Right? Make it a part of you and then declare it to others. To this day, Faithful Christians toil to perceive as much as we can about the grace and mercy and justice and wrath of God as we can. We endeavor to perceive what we can and then we endeavor to proclaim what we perceive. To put yourself in the Apostle John's place for a moment, this might have stricken him as an exceedingly odd command right he's banished he is he is 
uh, confined to the island of Patmos. He had little hope of declaring the Lord's word as verse 11 describes to tribes and nations and languages and kings. Except, of course, that he's essentially doing that very thing this morning. This vision of the apostle. It was given to him for more than just information. It was motivation. John was to use it to declare the glory of Christ for the rest of his life. However long that is and wherever he lived it out. The seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 were to receive this revelation and put it into practice in their lives. Remember, the message of Revelation is not just to dramatically tell us about the future. It is to declare the glory of Christ in a way that radically changes our present. It's not here to make us fortune tellers describing future events, but to make us gospel-centered so that we declare presently the necessity to repent and believe because judgment is coming. Christian, the message of Revelation is not given so that you can have your head in the clouds, but it's here so that you put your hand to the plow. John still had work to do. We still have work to do. Live your life in the expectation of Christ's return. Speak to others with the understanding that they are facing the judgment of God and they need the message of the gospel. Consume the word so it becomes a part of you and so that when you speak, it comes out of you. Give out what it is that you've taken in with the bitter and the sweet. The bitter is you're born in sin. You're facing the judgment of God. The wrath of God is what you deserve. But the sweet is (laughs) the Lord Jesus is perfect. He's loving, he's merciful, he's taken the wrath of God in the place of sinners. Repent and believe and his righteousness will be applied to you. Declare the bitter and the sweet together.